Hey, this is the Gig Life Podcast. I'm your host, Stevie Taylor. This podcast is produced wholly by me. It's not connected to any network or sponsors, which means we can pretty much do whatever we want. But it also means we don't get any of their monies. It's free for you to listen, always will be. But if you see value in the Gig Life Podcast, you can leave a tip or a donation. You can find a link in the show notes on your podcast app or at thegiglifepodcast.com. Okay, this is episode 114. It's Shauna Jensen. Here we go. Today is Shauna Jensen. Shauna is a vocalist with an outstanding pedigree. She's had an illustrious career and has worked in not only the Australian live music scene but also the recording industry as well. Shauna started her career singing in 1970 with the band Purple Vision, whose biggest highlight for Shauna was supporting Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs. In the early 70s, Shauna tried her hand at musical theatre, being in the original cast of Jesus Christ Superstar. This led Shauna to studio work. In her role as a studio session singer, her voice has been heard on many TV and radio commercials, as well as soundtracks for film and TV series. From this began a successful career singing backing vocals and touring for a couple of decades with Australia's leading rock industry professionals, including Jimmy Barnes, Noiseworks, Cold Chisel, Richard Clapton and Doug Parkinson. She's even recorded an unreleased album of duets with Hugh Jackman, and that was produced by the late legendary Phil Ramone. She's appeared on TV as a judge on Network 7's Pop Stars Live, as a regular panellist on Foxtel's Beauty and the Beast, featured singer on, on Foxtel's Studio A, as well as every incarnation of the midday show on the Nine Network as a soloist. Shauna recently appeared as one of the 100 judges in Network 7's All Together Now, and in the last decade, Shauna has had many sellout cabaret shows in Sydney and is in high demand. 2020 marked Shauna's 50th year as a professional musician. An incredible singer, she's a gem, and she calls it how she sees it. Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for the fabulous Shauna Jensen. Right, I think we're rolling. Welcome and congratulations on 50 years in the music industry, Shauna Jensen. Hey, Stevie, thank you so much. Hey, um, here we are. How many shots have, have we tried at this? <laughs> <laughs> I think this is our fourth or fifth attempt. Yeah, but yeah. We did it. We did it. We're here. We're here. And yeah, um, yeah like I just said, congratulations. Like, 2020 was your 50th year in the yeah. music industry 
Um, yeah. And, and what a pretty shit year to have your fiftieth anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't what I expected. That's yeah. for sure. Or yeah. wasn't what any of us expected. Yeah. So what? Um. But, you know. Yeah. So how was your? I, I don't want to focus too much on the COVID thing because it's been talked about a lot. And um, um, as I've I've said before, everyone's very aware of the devastation that did to the to the local music music industry and to musicians and and artists and stuff. But um. Yeah. Give us a little rundown on how your 2020 went down, and and you know on on the 50 year thing. Did you have did you have some plans to celebrate that 50 years? Uh, not necessarily. Mm. I I kind of I'd had an operation uh, on my ankle in uh, late 2019. It was a major operation. Sorry, I'm just fixing my. You're right. My uh, power. Um, I had an, a pretty serious operation on my ankle in the end of 2019 and that impacted on me quite greatly. Um, I wasn't able to do as much work as I wanted to do and I had a, a, quite a bit of rehabilitation. So, and then COVID hit and mm. it was like, oh, great. Fantastic. So I did do a couple of gigs um, being pushed around in a wheelchair, <laughs> in a wheelchair and my knee scooter and um, that was kind of fun. And then COVID hit and it was, it was, I had already been in my, my own kind of lockdown because of my surgery. Okay. So I didn't feel like it impacted on me as much as it would have had I not been recovering from that surgery. But I, I kind of went, okay, well, how am I going to kind of get myself out there? And I did a few live streams, which was quite fun. Yep. I called it Lezo, Lezo in Lockdown. Lezo in Lockdown, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and awesome. that was quite fun and uh, started it off with the theme from Prisoner um, oh, on the inside. And it was a lot of fun and people were very generous and lovely and, and um, you know, it was nice that people kind of, you know, gave us tips for all the people that did do live streams. But that's challenging in itself because you're, you're you know, singing in your lounge room mm. and the song finishes and you're like, right, you're in my lounge room. And then you finish <laughs> your little show and you're like, right, okay, well, here I am still in my lounge room by myself and I found that really quite odd. Mm. But I, did, I probably did about a half a dozen shows or eight shows. Yeah, that's And I, I was fortunate enough to have a venue that I do uh, cabaret shows at in Sydney that were able to start putting cabaret shows on with limited capacity. and. Uh, you know, the distancing and all that stuff. So I was able to do a couple of those, which was really good. But, you know, it's, it was, it's, you know, we all know how sucky it was. It's a sucky time. Yeah. There's no so, way around it. Yeah. So going back to your ankle, going back to your ankle, did you, did you have an injury? Did you fall or something or is it, or just something I, that? Well, I had fallen over on my, ankle a lot and I ended up with really bad arthritis Okay, and I had to, uh, 
I, I was at a point where I was in so much pain and my ankle looked like it had a grapefruit underneath it, okay. my ankle joint, and I had to have a full ankle fusion. Wow. So it's pretty full on. Yeah, they, they you know, fuse bone and put a titanium plate in and pins. They call them pins, but they're actually like four-inch screws in the aisle for it, Bunnings. They're huge. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. it's it's just it's quite weird and the rehabilitation was quite long and, um, you know, I don't have this, a range of motion in my foot as I did uh, before the operation, but it's okay now, you know. So, so just on, so is it, or well, people can't see my hand moving, but is it like the, no. when, you, when you're walking or is it the side to side? It's walking, so yeah. it's heel to toe. Heel to toe, yeah, okay, yeah. Heel to toe and the plate is in the front of the foot. Yeah. So from about a, a quarter of the way up your ankle into your shin. Okay. And uh, you have to be non-weight bearing for four months. Oh, wow. So that was really, I mean, thank God for my family. Mm-hmm. Thank God for my daughter, Rebecca, and, mm-hmm. and hus- her husband, Michael, and my grandchildren because I had to stay at their place. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't, I couldn't you know, shower I, by myself. I couldn't get around. It was, I had to stay off it. It was really hard. Mm-hmm. So I just sat and ate lots of chocolate, <laughs> as you do. Yeah, yeah. Drank wine, yeah. ate chocolate, and took opiates. Woohoo! Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was it was a very challenging time. And uh, so the range of motion that I have on my foot now is if I, if I point my left leg forward, mm. I can point my toe like anybody normally could, yep. and then I go to do the same thing on my right foot, and it hardly moves. Wow, okay. But, you know, I could still I stand on my toes, but I can't do a lot. I don't have the same motion, range of motion that I did. There won't be any more roller skating. There won't yeah. be any more high heels. Yeah. There won't be any more, you know, it's difficult to do things like gardening. It's difficult to do yoga mm. because I don't, I just don't have that same range of motion in my ankle. So, you know, I, I walk a lot go to the beach with my dog and, you know, that's what I do. Yeah. You mentioned. Try and get rid of. Uh, sorry, yeah, um, you meant you mentioned your daughter, Beck, Beck Jensen, and her husband, Michael Michael Wheatley. Wheatley, um, yeah. sh- Shout out to Michael and Beck. Um, they were both Yay. on the podcast. So go back and look for their interviews and, and have a listen and, and, and catch up with them. Um, yes. So you're, uh, you're living on the Central Coast. Um, I am. Central coast of New South Wales. And um, how long have you been up there and and what what, um, made you move up there? I've been up here for two years Mm -hmm. and I moved up here because being a musician all my life and being shit with money, I never really kind of um, saved enough to buy a house, so I'm a renter. And quite happy with that, you know, no regrets there. Um, And I kind of got pushed out of the Sydney rental market and I wanted a lifestyle where I could, you know, live well 
and I didn't want to be living in a studio apartment in Sydney at my age. And so I decided that north was better than south because mm-hmm. I like the beach and mm-hmm. warm weather. And it's still only an hour and a half out of Sydney. So it's not that far. Yep. Hour and, an hour and 15 minutes I can be in the city on the train. Yep. And, you know, it's but it's beautiful. It's quiet. Not terribly multicultural. Not a lot of diversity up here. But it's beautiful and I love it. I love the lifestyle. I have a two-bedroom house I can afford. You know, it's and I, I, I miss uh, just being able to go to a gig and yeah, see right. somebody. Yep. You know, I kind of like I, I just thinking, oh yeah, I'll go out tonight. Mm. It's, you've got to plan your whole, you know, journey out, mm. and that's annoying. But that's okay. I didn't go out that much anyway, even when I lived in Sydney. Okay. So how's the how? Sorry, what? How is the music scene in the Central Coast? I don't know. Okay. I don't I don't really <clears throat> I think that there's a lot of venues that do little duets, mm-hmm. solo gigs. I know that there's bands that do gigs, but I haven't investigated it. I'm not really interested in pursuing looking to get a band up here. Not interested. Okay. Too old, doll. Fair enough. Yeah, you know, you get to, uh, you know, I'll be 68 this year. Mm-hmm. So I, the thought of actually trying to get a band together and that whole palaver that goes on with putting a, getting a band together, <laughs> forget it. <laughs> I'd rather do it in Sydney and do it for yep. a specific project, yep. which, uh, you know, I have some things in mind that I'd like to do next year. Great. Um, but, yeah, I'm not planning on doing anything at the moment. I'm just staying put, waiting for my second vaccination, and when I'm fully vaccinated, I'll think about what I want to do moving forward musically. Good stuff. You know. Good stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, let's um, let's roll right back to the beginning now. Um, okay. Yep. And then we'll um, yeah, we'll work up work up through your life and your career and. Um, <laughs> see where we end up. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, w- were you were you born in Sydney? I was born in Sydney, and mm-hmm. my my um, I was really lucky to be born into a family that had singers. My 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 mother's my maternal family. My grandfather, who who were Greek my maternal family, and my grandfather was a fabulous singer and his first uh, second-born daughter, Angela, became a professional opera singer and she sang at Covent Garden and she was a, was a wonderful singer and she studied quite hard. But I was just born with the genetics to be able to, to sing quite easily, have a great feel for it. and. So I just didn't want to do anything else but sing as I was growing up. And I was in plays and I went to the talent school. And when I say talent school, I mean 
it was the local Presbyterian church hall Saturday morning, you know, talent school that was run by a woman called Miss Roderick. And Miss Roderick taught us how, you know, ballet, highland flings, tap dancing, singing, plays. That was the, the whole gamut. The whole thing. Of, yep. Yeah, it was everything, and it was great. And um, one day a talent scout from Channel 7 came to the school looking for kids to go on the Tarax show or something it was called, I can't remember, and I was about seven and they got me to go on television this Saturday morning and I remember my dad taking me, so maybe it was a work day because normally my mother would have done something like that but I remember my father taking me and it was summer and it was really hot and all the kids were getting ice blocks and coke or Tarax or whatever it was drinks and we didn't get anything anyway I there were these two men who were the hosts of the show you could never have anything like that now and they were called Uncle Reggie and Uncle somebody else and there was the set was this door and they were in banana chairs, who believe this, yeah. um, on either <laughs> side and they brought me up to them and they had a little chat with me and I, I, can't, I don't know what I said and I remember they had a chat with me and then they said, well, just go through that door and I went through the door and I sang a song. I sang A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes from Cinderella. And I always look at that moment as being the metaphor for walking into the world of show business. Yeah, right. Awesome. Like I haven't, and I haven't come out yet. I'm still in there. Yeah, great. Wandering cool. around, you know. So that was kind of my first television appearance. I wish I had it. I don't. I don't know where it is. It could be in the archives somewhere. Mm. Um, and that was. That was kind of like the first thing I did. And then as I moved through my youth and into my teens, I just, I was very fortunate because my mother, my mother's best friend worked for the only promoter in Australia who brought everybody out, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Ray Charles, everything that was at the stadium in Sydney, which was where the Beatles performed. Mm which was a big wooden, it was a, they used to have boxing there. Mm -hmm. They had all different kinds of things there and it was just this huge round wooden building. It's where, it's in, was in Rushcutters Bay. And uh, he just gave my mother tickets to everything. So my earliest memories of seeing music were going to the stadium and seeing these shows of people would come out that they would bring out entertainers from, you know, all over the world. So I saw the Beatles and I saw the Rolling Stones when they came out and um, and then as, and that just inspired me more. I just loved music so much and just had such a feel for it. And my sister brought home a... Um, Motown Chart Busters LP, which I still have. Oh, cool. And it changed my life, that record. It just, I was just like, oh, my God, who is this? Who are these people? Because at that time, when I was growing up in the, in the 
late 50s and the early 60s, in those formative years, we had a white Australia policy. So we didn't see any people of colour on the streets unless they were soldiers coming here for R&R from Vietnam or the war or wherever they came from, or entertainers, Sammy Davis Jr., Shirley Bassey, and anybody that they would bring with them you know, musicians, and they didn't play any black music on the radio. It was all white music. And so I thought that the blues was what the animals played and the Rolling Stones. I didn't realise that they had taken that, appropriated that music and made it their own. Mm. But that's what I've been listening to and listening to the Beatles and, you know, miming the Beatles to play pretend that we were the Beatles, my sister and the girl from across the road and me on pl plunking away on um, tennis rackets. <laughs> and I always had to be George and it really gave me the shit because <laughs> they always wanted to be Paul or John and I was like, I, I want to be Paul. But I was the little sister. So so, so whoever, um, played, whoever played Paul, did they used to flip the tennis racket? No. Because Paul's, no. left, Paul's left-handed. I right? know. Yeah. I know. Maybe she did. I don't know. Okay. I don't remember. Yeah. I was pretty young. I was like 10, 10 years old, I think. Okay. So, you know, I moved. I just wanted to wanted to sing and I sang at school and I, I left school and I just wanted to sing, much to my parents' chagrin. They were not happy. And um, my mother wanted me to go and, learn how to be a secretary and I was like I'm not doing that and I sat at home for like a year watched days of our lives and didn't really do very much and then I started going out to um see people I went to see I started, it was when I started singing professionally. I went to a, there was a club in King's Cross called John's and Charlie's. And it was, Donnie Sutherland was the house DJ. And there was a band called Purple Vision. And I got up and sang Peace of My Heart with them one night. And they were like, oh my God, you have to join our band. And so, I went out to. That, sorry, that's the is that the Janis Joplin, Janis Joplin. Yeah. Song? Okay. Cool. Yeah, great, yeah, yeah. Great cracker song. So, I and I love Janis Joplin. I yeah. had that Big Brother and the Holding Company, Cheap Thrills album, and I sang "Piece of My Heart." And they loved it, and they invited me to be in their band. So the following week, I went out to Lakemba, which to me was like. This little girl from, you know, Vaucluse, Watson's Bay. To me, Lakemba was like Penrith. It was like, what? Anyway, went out there with my sister and I sang with the band and they pulled me aside and they said, you know, you were really good at the club, but today not so much. And I think that was, that was me being a bit kind. They told me I was sucked or something. Straight up. <laughs> And I was like mortified. Anyway, <laughs> I joined that band. I ended up joining that band. And um, that was the start of kind of being in bands and having starting that life. And 
I've been in a lot of bands, sung yeah. with a lot of people, you know. So that was the start of start of it all, really. Yeah. Can Purple we just – Yeah, Purple Vision. So can we go back to <clears> – before you got on that TV show and walk through the the um, yeah. the, the door into, into show business, right? Um, and this is before you started seeing the Beatles and Rolling Stones going yeah. to those shows. What – kind of music was was in your house what kind of music was mum and dad listening to and um they were listening to frank sinatra live at the sands which was one of my favorite albums they listened to um a bit of opera they didn't listen to a lot of music my parents okay not they didn't listen to a lot of music there wasn't a lot of music in our house as far as I can remember, but mm-hmm. I remember I remember loving that that album of Frank Sinatra Live at the Sands, and I have an image of that playing in my house. And what else did they had listened to? I think they listened to mostly, you know, a bit of classical music and mm. yeah, not much more. I'm just that. trying to get. I'm just trying to get to that point where you. Realised that you could naturally sing and, and, and what you were singing along to or, you know, that, that. Well, I was singing along to the radio. Okay. You know, that's what I was singing along to. I was singing along to, you know, It's My Party and I'll Cry If I Want To and yep. Cinderella songs and and pop music of the day mm-hmm. and as a seven-year-old, eight-year-old does, you know, but we had transistor radio and, yep. um we had records in our house. My sister and I had records, but they were mostly Disney records, I think, from what I can remember, you know, that style of, of Disney music. And but what it, an interesting thing happened to me many years later as an adult. I went to a friend's wedding at the Greek church in Rose Bay, and I hadn't been to Greek church since I was a little kid. And um, they have a can- they have somebody singing, a cantor singing, the priest, and then the, the singing. And I realised that it was very similar scale to the blues scale. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, no wonder I was drawn to this. I grew up hearing this, but I didn't realise that. That's what it was. That that it it there was there was on some level that music got into me. But I always sang. My sister and I always sang. We were singing from the time you know my parents would take us to a house party, and they'd get the kids to sing, and we would always be singing yep. something together or separately. And and I think that that. I just had the ability and the affinity to music and I just had that. It was just in me genetically. It's just gotcha. in there. Yeah, I understand. You know? so, yeah. Mm. yeah, that's really cool. Okay, so Purple Vision's the first band. Now, <laughs> were you starting to see stars in your eyes there? Take this band to the world, <laughs> and when, no, yeah, okay. And so, so how did how did things kind of progress from from there musically? So from there, 
of course, what happened was I didn't know very many musicians. I didn't know it, you know, my circle was not, I didn't have very many friends even really. Mm. And um, I remember with Purple Vision we did a gig supporting Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs at a club called The Here in North Sydney, no longer there, run by a famous mafioso Sydney, as all the clubs were in those days. <laughs> and I remember seeing Billy come in because we would support, we were the support, and Billy and the Aztecs would come in and they were like, Billy was just fucking like a freight train, Billy. Yep. And he would come in, apparently he used to have his harmonicas in vodka, or that was the myth. I don't know whether that was true. (laughs) I did ask him about it many years later, but he said he didn't remember. Um, And it was an an amazing education. I was 17, 16, 17. And um, so we used to play gigs and then that broke up. Something happened, I don't know. I ended up joining a band called Flake. I was with a band. They had a a song called Wheels on Fire with a singer called Sharon Sims. And I think that might have come out of Purple Vision. I don't know. I can't remember. Too far, too long ago. And um, I started going and taking myself. I remember going to Whiskey A Go-Go in William Street and just going up to musicians and introducing myself saying I'm Shauna and I'm a singer and they were happy to meet me because mm-hmm. I had large breasts and I was young and hot and um and I met lots of great musos that remained friends you know forever yeah. and uh and I look I just did I never really kind of had ambition to be a star Mm-hmm. I just wanted to sing. And so I went from one thing to another, to another, to another. And I did gigs with a little band in King's Cross. And one night, I think it was the same band. And one night was a jazz night. And one night was a blues night. And one night might have been a soul night. So it was it was just me winging it and just learning songs and learning the repertoire and singing it and being fabulous, having a great time. Yeah. And that's kind of how I spent a lot of my my time up until the 70s, I guess, mm. you know, the, uh, the early 70s. And that was when I went into Jesus Christ Superstar. Mm. So no. be- before we get into Jesus Christ Superstar, so how oh, <clears throat> excuse me, how many gigs you reckon you were doing a week? Oh shoot, um, I could easily have been doing five gigs a week, mm-hmm. some weeks six gigs, because in those days every pub had a band, yep. every club had a band. I was working at the Kuji Oceanic Hotel. I might have been working in the Cross somewhere. I might have been working, you know, anywhere. There was just there was a lot of a lot of work around. Not a lot of money, but wasn't you know 
I guess relative to what people get paid today, probably about the same. But mm. there was more work available then. It was free poker machines. Yep. Okay. So you know that killed everything, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay. So Jesus Christ Superstar. How did that come about? And um. Yeah. What were you doing so, at the time? Yep. Well, I was I was living in uh I was living in Piermont in a share house with a trombone player who was friends with the MD of Jesus Christ Superstar. It was before the show had started. And the musical director, Michael Carlos, came over to the house one day and the trombone player said, introduced us and um, Michael said, well, I'm actually looking for a singer to be in this band. I'm putting the band together, the Jesus Christ Superstar pit band together and I want to do six weeks of gigs at the Coogee Oceanic Hotel and we want a female singer but I don't want anybody for the, I want you. And John English is going to be the singer and it was like two keyboard players, guitar player, bass player and I was like, I'm in. And so I went and did that gig and <clears> then <throat> when and then Superstar opened and then I think six or eight weeks after it opened they had auditions again to fill the cast out and I auditioned and got in. And then I did that, I did Superstar for, I don't know, a year maybe, can't mm. remember. It was fun though mm. and taught me so much. Yeah. So much. Um, Harry Bruce and Greg Henson were in that band, weren't they? They're in no, the super- Greg was in the band. Yep. Was Greg in that band? Yeah, Greg was in that band. Harry Bruce wasn't in that band. Bruce okay. Worrell was the bass player in that band who had been in Sherbet or went on to become in, to go be in Sherbet. Yep. Yeah. So, and I knew Bruce. I've just got to get my chronological order right oh, here. It's okay. Don't don't stress too much about it. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. But yeah. I I I knew Bruce. Because I had lived in a house, a share house in Glebe, and Sherbet used to rehearse in the house. Right. And Bruce lived it, and Garth lived in the house. So that's how right. I knew them. Um, right. But it was it was that band, that superstar band was um, Michael Carlos, Jamie McKinley, Mike Wade, Greg Henson, Bruce Worrell, and I think that was it. And John English and myself. It was fun. Yeah. It's really good. Really, it was a great band. And it was a great way for him. It was a really good idea for him to do that six weeks of gigs to get the band tight. So when they went in to do Superstar, they were already a cohesive unit. So that was really smart of Michael Carlos. And Michael Carlos was the first guy to use a Moog synthesizer in Australia. He helped right, develop it. Right. Moog, so yeah, amazing, but not that that was happening then. I don't think. Right. So, <clears throat> had you seen or heard of any think like Jesus Christ Superstar before? So, did you know when it when it came to start doing the shows, mm. kind of what you're in for, and 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 I mean, because that that thing got pretty <laughs> got pretty big, didn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I had never done anything like that before. 
That mm -hmm. was a, a completely new experience for me. I had auditioned. No, I had almost auditioned for Hair, the musical, but I didn't want to take my clothes off, so I was I didn't do it. Jesus Christ Superstar was an incredible experience because it taught me how to sing with other people. Mm -hmm. It taught me how to sing to a, a a huge house, how to project to the back room, the back of the, you know, theatre. And some nights, and we were all a pack of rat bags, half of the show <laughs> had, had come from hair. They're all yep. hippies. It was a big tribe. We called ourselves a tribe. Yes. And... Oh, we used to smoke pot and, you know, just like we just lived life and we were loving it and living our best lives. And it was a – Harry and Miller was the producer and we would do things – we would do a show and think, wow, that was a great show, we were fantastic. And we'd get a call over the PA that Harry and Miller's coming in, wants to speak to the cast on stage immediately after the show. So you'd get down onto the stage and Harry would come down and he'd go – so I guess you thought that was a really good show and everyone would be like, yeah, it was great. And he'd go, that was the biggest load of shit I've ever seen and he'd <laughs> bag you out and the whole premise of that was to make you lift your game and he would do that every so often yep. um, to just make, make us all maintain a standard. He didn't want anybody getting slack, and it was an it was an amazing experience. And I'm still friends with majority of those people that are still alive. Um, you know, we had a reunion a few years ago. It was really good. The 40th reunion, amazing. Um, and it was it was an outstanding experience. Outstanding. Mm. You don't get to experience something where you're on stage with, you know, 40 other people or 50 other people these days. And they were all incredible singers. Every single one was a great singer and a performer and Stevie Wright was in it. He played Simon and there was John and Trevor and the girl who played um, Mary was called Michelle Forden. She unfortunately passed away from cancer a few years ago. And she wasn't a great singer but she was an actor and they decided they would get somebody who could sing. She was a little bit quirky mm -hmm. and adorable. And the original cast had a guy called Joe Dicker in it as um, uh, Herod and John Paul Young was in it. Michael Caton was in it. Right. And this was before, jo before John Paul Young had his first hit right. with whatever that first hit he had was. Yep. And um, <laughs> that's funny. And uh, I remember him recording that, whatever that first hit was. So, yeah, lovely, great experience, wouldn't change it for the world. And I went on to do another couple of theatre shows, but I didn't like the – I didn't like the fact that you had to do the same thing every night. That was not I, – I find it very – difficult to I don't find it difficult of course I can do that mm. I would pref I prefer to be 
free. Understand. And to be able to, to be unrestricted in how I sing something because I don't want to sing something the same every night. Mm. It doesn't that's not how it comes to me. And but there are people who do that job extraordinarily well and love it. But music theatre, not my jam at all. Mm. I like I you know, I've I've enjoy I enjoyed seeing Priscilla the musical. I enjoyed seeing um, Muriel's wedding, and that's about it. I'm not into musicals. Yep, fair call. Okay, so what other opportunities did that show sort of open up to you? Obviously, you've met all this, you know, all these new musicians and and the the new acts, and and you know, even the management of of the shows. And you said you did a couple of other theatre things, but what sort of outside of that came about after Jesus Christ Superstar? So after Jesus Christ Superstar or even during Jesus Christ Superstar, um, I got approached to do, to start doing jingles, to do some recording for, might have been just after Superstar because I had a baby after, I had Rebecca in 76, so it m- must have been, a, you know, a couple of years after that, maybe seventy-eight. Um, so, sorry. So just on, sorry, just on that. When I when yeah. I spoke to Beck on the podcast, um, I asked her. Was talking about how, how her sort of musical sort of started, and she mentioned that that you were pregnant with her during Jesus Christ Superstar, and she was kind of, kind of. Uh, had, she was had, in the show. Had had those. <laughs> yeah, she was in the show. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, she was, uh, her dad was the guitar player in the show at that time. And, um, and yeah, and I was pregnant with her. I got pregnant with her and I think then we might have gone to New Zealand or something and I, I can't remember. It was a long yep. time ago. Um, you'll find that I can't remember a lot of things okay. a long time ago. Um <laughs> Yeah, and yeah, so she's a superstar baby. Cool, that's really cool. Yeah, a couple awesome. of superstar babies, and um, yeah, they're a little club. And oh, really? Yes, yeah, so well, not club. really, but you know, oh, <laughs> they call them our superstar babies. Okay, that's um, cool. my in fact, my Becky, one of the women that I became very good friends with, and and still, she's one of my best friends. She was originally from New Zealand and came over to do Superstar and we became pregnant around the same time. And our children were born within six weeks of each other. And we lived on the both lived on the northern beaches and we both became single mothers. And so Beck and Tui, this little girl Tui, she and Becky became best friends and they did lots and lots of stuff together and they've remained best friends their whole lives and they're godmothers to each other's children and oh, great. they were superstar babies and that's, you know, a be- that was a beautiful thing and awesome. still is a beautiful thing, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so after Superstar, I, uh, myself, there was about five, five of us. It was myself and Maggie McKinney. Russell Hitchcock and Adrian Payne. Russell Hitchcock, of course, went on to form Air Supply with Graham Russell. Right. They were both in Superstar. 
and a guy called Adrian Payne, great singer, and myself and Maggie started being invited to do recording sessions, to do jingles, and um, we just had a great sound. And so we worked for a producer who was just starting out, who shall remain nameless because I don't want to get sued or you to get sued. Okay. <laughs> because I don't have a very high opinion of him. Yep. And uh, we we all basically agreed to work for him for a ch- for less money than we should have worked for him because he was starting out. And um, but that that sprung from being in Superstar. He wasn't in Superstar. I don't. We just kind of stumbled upon this. And um, so I started doing a lot of recording sessions, a lot of jingles, a lot of jingles, sometimes three a day. I was doing a lot um, all through the 80s really. And, uh, and that led on to me being asked to sing on Jimmy Barnes's first album when he left Chisel and did his first album. So I went on to sing on that record and then got asked to go on tour and then started because we were, we had such great sound and it ended up being myself and Maggie and Mark Williams and we did a lot of recording sessions together and the Eurogliders, we did their album. Um, oh, we did lots, lots and lots and lots of things and, uh, and I ended up going on tour with Jimmy from that point on, basically, um, and from 1984, I think that was, and could have been 83 or 84, and toured with him for about 20 years or more. But I always had my own band, mm-hmm. and when I wasn't working with Jimmy, I'd go out on tour with Richard Clapton or I'd go on tour with Noiseworks or mm-hmm. Margaret Ehrlich or whoever asked me I would do it and I was very good at it and that was why I got a lot of work because I'm very good at doing backing vocals. I got a question regarding backing vocals and when you when you go into a and and I've asked this before on on podcast to different um singers. Yeah. When you go into a backing vocalist gig what's your what's your process when you first sort of turn up there, do you get with the whoever your other backing vocalists are and find out? Well, sorry, you you are you asked to join the gig because of your certain range, or and then how how do you have that conversation with the other backing vocalists to find where you're all going to fit? Does that does that make sense? Yeah, uh, yep. usually it will de- would depend on what the gig was. Mm-hmm. Like if it was a recording session, generally probably 80% of the time doing a recording session that was an album, not necessarily a jingle because jingle producers always knew what they wanted and they would just say, this is what you're singing, this is what you're singing, this is what you're okay. singing. And can you put an octave on top of that? And that yep. would be what they – can you swap parts? Yep. And that's why Ma- Maggie and I worked so well together because we had a very similar tone. 
-hmm. and we could double parts and change bits around and you sing the top and I'll sing the bottom and Mm -hmm. that's where it would go. But when you're doing an album, 80% of the time you would walk into the studio and the producer would not know what they want, know that they wanted backing vocals but not necessarily have an arrangement Mm -hmm. and you would – there was a joke that used to go around about how many record producers does it take to change a light bulb. I don't know. What do you think? Because that was kind of, (laughs) I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? So it was always a matter of you'd go in and you'd listen to the track and depending on – usually I knew whoever I was working with. And I would just say, I'm going to do the top. Okay. I'll do the top or I'll do the melody, you do the third, you do that, and then we'll swap. Because generally the way that you make a good sound is that you would, you would, well, what would happen in those days was pre-computers. You would go in and you would listen to the song and you would start at the end of the song. And so it was all songs are first chorus, first chorus, bridge, chorus, 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 finish. So you'd start at the end of the song with the chorus. You'd work out what it was that you were going to do, who was going to sing what, and you'd go in and you'd record it, then you'd double track it, then you might put another part on and double track that. Uh, That was if you were singing the same, both singing the same thing. Or often Maggie and I would sing, she'd sing one part, I'd sing another part. When we double-tracked it, we'd swap. So it would give this a bigger, fatter yep. sound. Yep. And we would do the end of the song. So when you do the end of the song, it's usually three or four choruses. So by the time you've finished all that tracking, you go back and you do the first chorus, boom. You could just do it, boom, 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 yeah, boom, boom, right. and it's done. And it has energy. And right. which is what they're looking for. And that's what I hate so intensely about what I hear these days is people just cutting and pasting music. Ah! Drives me mad. <laughs> yeah. It, you just don't get the same vibe. And uh, I understand that, that that's the way it is. But, you know, I... I, I the time that I came up in was a golden time in music for me. Yeah. And I can remember going and doing Doug Parkinson's I'll Be Around and those songs, God Rest His Soul. Can't believe he's gone. Um, and Duncan Maguire was the engineer, Mark Kennedy. And Duncan would actually say, Oh, I'm going to get rid of that. I'll just get rid of that breath. No, no, hang on a second. Just go and smoke a joint, and I'll I'll just go and fix this. And he'd and he'd go off into the back room, and he would literally splice the tape, yeah, with a with a blade, and you would never know that a mistake had been made or whatever it was. Wow. And you know, we would spend days in the recording studio doing an album, and depending, of course, you know, our session commercial sessions weren't like that. Commercial sessions where time is money, get it done, get on, sing it and get out. That was it. But with albums, there was usually a lot more freedom to be creative and 
of course, we never got um, credit for arrangements. We never got credit for, you know, writing the parts or arranging. But we yeah. did everything. You did it, but, yeah. But, of course, we never got credit for that. Um, and I loved it. I loved going into the studio and I loved then going and recreating that sound at gigs. You know, I always loved that. Loved, loved, loved that. And, um, yeah, so that's how think, that would usually work. Yeah, I think that's really interesting what you said about going in and doing the end first. I've, I haven't heard that before. That's That, hmm. that kind of really makes sense too because then you can – Put it all in at the, at at the end, like like sorry when you you're starting the session, you, you're doing all the you're you're filling it up as, as much as you can, yeah. Because if you kind of did it the other way, by the time you got to the end, um, it sounds you'd yeah. be going, oh, what do we do to make it fatter? Or you know, we've already done that, we did that back there, so yeah, that's yeah. that's fascinating. So oh, it was I, about I it was about creating the vibe and the energy mm. that. You would, and you'd be completely warmed up. So by the time you would go to that, back to that first chorus, you're on. Yeah, you'd just be like, when well, you've done it five thousand times already, so you just like, you know what the energy is, you know what you have to do, mm. and you just do it, and you have that same sound. And yeah. a lot of people just people just don't understand that anymore. They just record a chorus and cut and paste it. Yeah. So everything sounds near, nah, you know, linear. And mm. and look, I I've done it myself with recordings. I've yep. certainly done that myself, but it doesn't it doesn't have the same vibe. That's for sure. Mm. Okay, so you've come through that that era of lots of sessions, lots of jingles, um, playing with Jimmy, backing backing Jimmy, also backing or sing, yeah singing with Doug. What what's next? So then I started doing a lot of touring. Mm -hmm. So I was touring a lot with Jimmy and touring a lot. When I wasn't touring with Jimmy, I was touring with Richard Clapton. Yep. And if I wasn't touring with Richard, then there might be a noise works, there might be sessions. Um, and I always had my own band. I had my own band. I had a residency at a club called Springfields, which used to be called the Mansell Room, oh, yeah. for six years. And we didn't even start work till one o'clock in the morning. We started, mm -hmm. we did two sets, and we never even rehearsed. We, you know, learned a repertoire and played the same thing forever. Mm. Um, and that club was was just fantastic because you know we used to get all the touring musicians were coming because it was like an after hours and. All the musicians that wanted to get on it would come in, and you know we'd get people getting up and jamming, and that was really cool. Um, and uh, but the touring was it was great. I loved I loved touring most of the time. I loved it. There were times when I didn't love it. Um, you know, I went through that whole time with Jimmy where he was in a bad place and uh, I didn't understand his how I knew he was an addict but I didn't understand the depth of where that came from. So it was very disturbing and sometimes quite frightening to be around. 
there were times when there were times when something would happen that would trigger Jimmy and he would become quite violent and aggressive and uh, that that was very fun to be around but that didn't happen a lot it was more often than not it was was pretty fun and uh, we did this was days before he would do big arenas he was doing you know those big pubs that were everywhere that would have five or six hundred people in them and and clubs and um you know the mosh pit it was just everyone was jam-packed in there and and they were diehard chisel fans diehard barnsley fans and it was the same with richard touring with richard and the same with noiseworks although that was a bit later on so we probably mm-hmm. did we did bigger arenas with Noiseworks. And then I did Chisel. I did the first Chisel reunion tour, mm-hmm. backing vocals with that. And, you know, all the way working up to that, that whole year probably was terrifying because the closer it became, the more out of control Jimmy got. And uh, that was that was not fun to be around and I remember being in Western Australia and we were taking a small plane down the coast and I remember ringing my girlfriend and saying I don't want to get on the plane it's like rock stars and small planes it's not good Mm. you know it's bad it was scary Mm. and um, she'd be like just feel you'll be all right just you know look out the window and you know meditate and all that stuff and lucky we didn't have a plane crash or anything nasty, but it was yep. there were some pretty scary, hairy times there. Mm. That's for sure. But the music always made up for it. I loved, loved, loved being on stage with Jimmy Barnes. Loved mm-hmm. it. Loved it. One of the best experiences of my career because Jimmy gave me an opportunity to sing in front of thousands of people. And often I was the only singer. Well, often it was just me. Mm. And he gave me the opportunity to sing in front of thousands of people. He shared the stage with me. We would do duets together. He was very generous in that regard. And, you know, every experience that you have is a learning experience, be it good or bad. And even the bad ones were learning experiences. And um, I'm so grateful to him for all those years of, of those gigs because they were absolutely incredible. And, uh, you know, I got to travel all over Australia. I worked, I've worked in every single venue that you could possibly work at. And I've you know, travelled to overseas with him and I got to do a lot of stuff. Although if you were to read his book, Working Class Man, I don't even exist in that book. I was in, invisible to him. But that was his reality and once I got over my ego, bruised ego, <laughs> not not being mentioned in that book. Well, I found it really interesting, Stevie, because yeah. he... When he wrote Working Class Boy, I had to keep putting that book down because I know the whole family. 
very well. And it was very disturbing to read that that was what his life was. And it, and it gave me an insight into the man he had become that was addicted to the drugs and the violence and that, you know, it was just perpetuating. Mm. And then when he wrote Working Class Man, which was the, the prequel, uh, prequel the, uh, the next book, which was about from Cold Chisel on his solo career, I started reading it and I'm like, there's pictures of guys in the band at the Platinum Records and I'm flicking through going, oh, yeah, right, there's my Platinum Record on the wall over there, same album. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, right. And then I'm reading the book and at some point he says, and then we did the Soul Deep Tour and we got some backing singers. And I was, I was really shocked. I was shocked that I meant so little to him when he had meant so much to me and it really upset me. I was wounded deeply and I had to really think about what it was that I, what my reality was. That was his reality. He was writing about his reality. And I had to think, well, what was my reality? And my reality was that, as I said to you, I got to sing in all those venues in front of all those people and and sing duets with him and work on all those big stages and work with incredible sound engineers and incredible musicians. So what I got from that was far more than my bruised ego. You know what I mean? So I got over that pretty quickly. And... Mm. Um, and I haven't worked for Jimmy for a long time. So, you know, I don't think he'll probably ever ask me to work for him again because I'm too old for him. He likes the young ones, likes the family in there. Um, but I did go up to Becky. My daughter Beck was doing backing vocals for him on the last tour. Yep. And I was in Brisbane doing a gig with Bob Down doing a, a, a show with Bob Down and we we had a matinee and I finished and they waited for me and I went out to the gig, drove out with Becky. It was Mother's Day and I drove out with Beck and stood at the side of the stage whilst the gig was on and 80% of the set was every single song I'd ever sung on stage with Jimmy and I wasn't sure how I was going to react. Mm. But I had a great time. I really loved it. I was loving watching Beck up there just killing it. You know, she was just amazing and sounded incredible and she was doing all the parts that I used to do. And then at the very last song, Jane said to me, I'll get up and sing. I was like, no, nah, no, nah, I don't want to get up and sing. And she was like, no, come on, get up. It's goodbye. Get up and sing. So I, I got up and sang. And Jimmy came up onto, onto the backing vocal riser and put his arm around me and sang this part of the song with me together. And then did this big introduction and and everybody went crazy and I was like, oh, that's really nice. You kind of redeemed yourself, sort of, <laughs> a little bit, 20%. 20% redemption. And, um, and his photographer, the guy that was Jared Singh that was taking the photos, caught this moment where Jimmy comes up and, takes Jane off the stage and they walk off together. It's a bit like Dr. Phil and his wife. And um, 
It is. It's totally like that. <laughs> and uh, and then he he leaned up and gave me a, a kiss, and I yeah. t- I asked I got him to take my hand because I needed to step down off the riser. And as he took my hand and I was stepping down, Jared got this shot. It's such a great photo. It will definitely go in my book. And I was like, okay, five more percent redemption for that moment. He's <laughs> up to 25% now. So I don't know if he's ever going to get up to 100%. Yeah. But that was a great day because John Stevens was there and I hadn't seen John for a long time and yep. Tony Coper was there who manages John and Tony and I had done backing vocals for the Cold Chisel Tour. So, Okay. And that was pretty amazing. The Cold Chisel Tour was just completely over the top. It was like com- completely over the top, rooms everywhere backstage, the game room and the bar room and the media room. Oh, it was amazing. It was just incredible. So what, what, tour, was, what tour was that Cold Chisel reunion tour? It was, was the was last that? wave of summer. Last wave of summer. Okay. Well, I saw oh. that. Um, I saw that show at the... Sydney Entertainment Centre. I'm yes. going to see that. Yeah, and and, and he had and the, I, had the the drag queens and the and the burlesque dancers, the strippers, and it caused a lot of drama in the band. That <laughs> right. Jimmy wanted it. Right. Jimmy wanted it. What Jimmy wants, Jimmy gets. Right. So, but that was great. That was fun tour. That's cool. We didn't do very much. Right. No. Yeah. So I don't know well, what else I can tell you about that. Well, you don't have to. That's that's cool. You, you've said heaps about that. that that's awesome. Now, f- once the once that sort of ended, <clears throat> um, how did your career change? You 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 went into TV, didn't you? You um. Oh pa- yeah, pa- I yes, I have done a bit of television. Mm-hmm. I was, I was, um, so I'm part of the LGBTQIA plus community and I was uh, judging the Mardi Gras parade on Oxford Street and Foxtel were broadcasting it and somebody came up and interviewed me, Gil Minervini actually, came up who's now the director of Vivid Australia, and she came up and interviewed me and I was just on. I was just funny. I I was able to speak well. They loved me. And the director was an old friend that said, I'm doing, I'm directing Beauty and the Beast. Do you want to be on it? And I was like, sure, okay. Now, I had been on television. I'd done a lot of singing on television. Mm-hmm. I had done the Mike Wall show with Mike Walsh, with Ray Martin and with Kerri-Anne Kennel, so Ken- Ken- Kennelly. Yep. And so I had done and The Tonight Show and blah, 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 done quite a lot of singing. Mm-hmm. And those gigs, those singing gigs on television, the midday show gigs, they went live to 3 million people used to watch that show. And you would go in in the morning and you might get two run-throughs if you were lucky, with the band, with Jeff Harvey and the orchestra, and then you would get maybe three camera rehearsals, then you were in hair and makeup, and then it was live. You Mm -hmm. did it live. That was trial by fire. That Mm -hmm. was 
you know, that was a, an incredible experience to 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 do that and to wear that fashion was probably <laughs> that eighties fashion that I wore. Oh my god! Um, but that was an amazing <laughs> experience, and so I'd done lots of that singing on television, but I'd never spoken on television. So when I went into Beauty and the Beast, I was on panel with Lisa Wilkinson, Ita Buttrose, um, so-and-so and so-and-so, Jeannie Little, mm. um, and a, f- a few other were rotating females on there. So this, this was and the Stan, Stan Zamanic. Well, Stan yeah. had become sick and okay. Doug Mulray had taken over. Oh right, okay. and I and I had done a lot of recording. I I was the triple 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 your music, triple M. That was me, really. And I had yeah, and I had done a lot of. Oh, wow. uh, I'd done a couple of albums for Doug, and uh, so he was happy to have me there to have somebody that was kind of more on his you know level. Anyway, I'd never spoken on television before and the way that Beauty and the Beast used to run was they would send you the questions and there was uh, a list of the six women who would be speaking in order. So you would know on the third question you'd be they'd go to you first or they'd go to you third or fourth mm-hmm. or whatever. So you had to think of as many responses as you possibly could. Mm-hmm. And I was I was a little bit in awe of of those women for a start because the, I felt that they were all university educated. Well, Jeannie was a very smart woman, but I felt like I was, you know, some inarticulate woman who really was my, what was my opinion worth? You know, I wasn't. I didn't have very high high kind of standards about myself. And I went on and I was quite good at it. And I had to learn not to say um and like <laughs> and uh like. like 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 don't say like. It's like Oh, so that was like was getting I, I thought like was kind of um in the last sort of ten years, the the, no, the, the teenagers, that, you know, like, like, and you know, saying, like, um, like, you know, yeah, yeah, like, you know, you know, yeah. you know, you tell, know what I mean? Tell me, you know what I'm saying? It's tell me about those, it. <laughs> it's those kinds, yeah, it's those kinds of things that you have to become immediately conscious of right. not saying and thinking before you speak and articulating your opinion in a way that differs from somebody else that's just basically said the same thing. And I remember at one point it came to me and I was just like, oh, whatever. And Doug goes, what does that mean, whatever? <laughs> and I said, it means whatever. I'm not interested. It's a stupid question. Move on. And they loved that. They loved that I <laughs> yeah, could, that's awesome. could speak like that. Yeah. So once I did that for about a year, and I didn't know that and we used to get, whenever I was on and whenever Gil Minervini was on, we would get a question about a gay, we'd get a gay question or a lesbian question. And I kind of felt like we were a bit tokenish, but I thought it's good that there's, that they're, they're, they're putting this in there because it's important for people to, 
hear that there's more than one opinion uh, that about to, to hear opinions about gay life, lesbian life, trans life, whatever. And one day, um, Ida Buttrose said something to me about labelling, and she said, "Well, I'm, you know, I don't say I'm Ida Buttrose and I'm a hetero." I'm not heterosexual, you know, I don't feel it's important to label myself. And I said, yeah, because you don't have to. Because you don't have to. We have to because it's important mm-hmm. that people know that, that there's diversity in the world. Anyway, she, her people must have said something to her that, oh, you didn't come off so well there, Ita. Because she was a <laughs> spokesperson for, you know, the AIDS Trust or the Bobby Goldsmith Foundation or one of those you know, big institutions. And the next time I went on, which was about two weeks later, I was on with Ita and there was another similar question and Ita was first and she referred to me. And I think it was you, Shauna, who said blah, 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 blah. And I was like, she's redeeming herself. And I was like, right, yes, that's right. Anyway, (laughs) so I, I, look, it was, I didn't realise that it was on Foxtel three times a day. And I was out one night at a club having a dance and this young, beautiful, young gay man came up to me and he said to me, you don't understand how important it was for me to hear you and see you on television because I grew up in the country in New South Wales and I felt so alone and I used to watch you on Beauty and the Beast and I knew that I would be okay. And I was like, oh, my gosh, oh, my God, it's so beautiful, you know, yeah. to, to have because you just don't think that you have an impact. You, it doesn't even come in, didn't even come into my consciousness that that whatever I said was going to impact on somebody because I just thought it was a bit of fluff TV, <clears throat> to be honest, excuse me. And then I did the next speaking gig I did on television was pop stars. And I became, they asked me to be the vocal coach on pop stars live. Mm. So I was like, yeah, all right, I'll do that. And it sounds like a fun gig. I like working in television. So I was, I, I would go over to this house. And what they had done with that pop stars show that year was instead of auditioning the talent, they they with just having a panel, they decided to get all these pop stars. Oh, who who it was? John Paul Young. What's her name from um, Bachelor Girl? What's her name? Tanya Doko. and was it Christine Anu? A couple of other people, and they picked the worst talent. Like, where they got these people, I have no idea. I don't know what they were thinking, but I was like, what? Anyway, so they wanted me to whip these people into shape. And at the time, I was probably didn't really have much patience at the time for stupidity. And, you know, when you put young kids on television. I I still don't. I still don't. I know I still don't either. (laughs) But at the time, I was probably <laughs> it was premenopausal, so okay. I was I probably used to, uh, I, not probably I definitely there was a time in the month when you just wouldn't cross me. 
just don't fucking cross me when I'm about to bleed. That's all I'm going to tell you. <laughs> and and I, I and I had a very low threshold for the yeah. talent. I was yeah. like, I couldn't believe it. The level of talent. Anyway, so they're trying to make this show into something that it was never going to be, and they ended up the judges firing all the judges. There's Molly Meldrum, a guy from the record company, and they asked me to be a judge. And I was like, sure, okay. They said, so have you got an evil nickname? I'm like, no, don't have an evil nickname. It's just, you know, <laughs> I'll play that game, whatever it is that you want me to do. They were paying me a shitload of money. Yep. I went, okay, sure, no problem. Um, I didn't want to, I said, I'm just going to be honest. I'm not going to be deliberately mean. I'm just going to be honest. And so, you know, a couple of times a week I'd go into Fox Studios and somebody would make me look glamorous and I'd go on and Molly Meldrum was obsessed with the ratings, obsessed. I'd go into the makeup trailer and he'd be, have you seen the paper today? And I'd be like, no, I don't read the paper. I'm not interested in what other people have to say. I'm experiencing it. I know it's a shit show. I'm here. Don't worry about it, you know. It's just get on with it, get paid, get out. Because what else are you going to do, really? Yeah, it's a day. Uh, you know, it was just, it was crazy. And there was a guy on the show who was quite big in, Hillsong or one of those big churches and he would bust people in into the audience and they'd introduce me and here's Shauna Jensen like boo here's boo they'd all boo me right because I'd been a bit mean to him <laughs> honest with him yeah anyway that was that was that <laughs> and that was interesting what was the most interesting thing to come out of that was my observation of people outside of television and how they, when you're on a show like that, when you're on a television show, people are inviting you into their lounge room. So they feel like they know you from your persona that they see on television. They think that that's who you are. So they feel like they can talk to you in any circumstance, anywhere that they own you. And people would come up to me in the supermarket and go, oh, hi, how are you going? And I'd go, oh, thanks. They'd go, oh, I, I know you. And i go, I don't think so. they go, oh, I know you from somewhere. And I said, well, and I hated saying, maybe you've seen me on television. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, it's so cliche. Yeah, and I would go, yeah. well, I'm on television a bit. And I'll, I'm on pop stars. Oh, no, I don't watch television. I'd go, oh, okay. Well, I must just have one of those faces or whatever. <laughs> and, I, and when I would go out dancing on a Sunday night or something after the show, um, I had a good group of friends around me who would buffer me against the the people that would want to come and talk to me. And I remember being at a club one night and the first time I decided to go out and I went to Ark Nightclub in Sydney and I ran into an old friend of mine. I hadn't seen her for ages. She was someone I was on Beauty and the Beast with. We were standing on the stairs trying to have a conversation and people were just, excuse me, I don't mean to interrupt, excuse me, I don't mean to interrupt, but 
blah, 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 blah. And, and I'd go, oh, okay, I'm just trying to have a conversation with my friend here. Okay, just wait a minute. And they because they'd be out of it, you know, they'd yeah. be used or on something. And I ended up, I remember ending up that night just dancing in the DJ booth because it was the only place I could get away from people because people just wanted to just talk to you. And I thought, what must it be like for somebody like Madonna? Right. It must just be for somebody like me who was like an E-lister to for somebody like it must just be awful the living with that and not having any any privacy or any I mean I'm happy to talk to anybody really mm. but people coming up and saying I don't mean to interrupt but and then interrupting you that really mm. gave me the shits and I, I one night I was out and I was sitting on the speakers at home nightclub having a great time my friends were dancing it was really good. I was just enjoying my drink and um, this guy, and this was at a time when people were all taking ecstasy and anybody would talk to anybody and put their arms around you and this guy started talking to me, oh, you're on Pop Stars. I was like, yep, and he started to talk to me about it and I said, well, I'm actually not at work now so mm. I don't really want to talk about it. I oh, goes, oh, yeah, fair enough. So we started talking about something else and. He brought the conversation around to to a, a point where I had to give him an opinion, and I gave him the opinion. He goes, "And that's what you should have said to that girl on Pop Stars the other <laughs> night." And I was like, "Oh, what? for God's sake, man! Oh, <laughs> you know, really and truly, it's you know, people are weird when when people know that you're a singer, they'll say, "Oh, could you sing something for me?" Yeah, right. You sing me something? I'm yeah. like, well, are you an accountant? Can you do my taxes for me? What do you do? And I, and I actually said to somebody at a, at a party once, he was this English guy and he was munted on something. And he goes, oh, yeah, I hear you're a bit of a singer. And I went, yes, I am. And he goes, well, you know, give us a song. And I was like, no. What do I look like, a performing you, seal or something? Yeah, you first. You first. <laughs> <laughs> After you. <laughs> and, I, and I said to him, what do you do? Yeah. And he goes, well, I'm in fashion. And I said, well, why don't you give me a demonstration of <laughs> what you do and yeah. then if I think that it's worthy enough, then I'll give you a demonstration of what I do. Yeah. And he started, you know, like showing me his jeans or something and I went, yeah, no, uh -uh, boring. And he goes, why aren't you going to sing anything? And I said, no, I'm not because that's my prerogative. He said, well, you're a fucking bitch. And I was like, yeah, oh, thank Jesus. you. Thank you so much. You're right, I am. Now, fuck off. You know, it was mm. like I, I'm not really a bitch, but I can be. So, in fact, he didn't call me a bitch. He called me the C word. Mm. And that was when I just went, you know what? I'm not, but I can be. And that's when I told him to fuck off. So, you know, people are just, it's, it's an interesting phenomena when you're mm. on television. And, you know, you have that level of, of recognition. And I've done it myself. I went up to Sasha Haller one day, the actor, at Bondi, and I was like, hi, how are you? And she went, I'm great. And I said, I just realised you're Sasha Haller and I don't know you. And I feel like <laughs> I know you, so I'm so embarrassed. Yeah. And I yeah. love you, you know. Oh, my God, yeah. fangirling. Yeah. It's crazy.
So my only my only experience is something really small like that, and it kind of freaked me out a little bit. Um, I was up at our local shops with my two girls, my two daughters, and this was this would have been eighteen months ago, I reckon. Anyway, I'm just walking through the shops, and this guy just came up to me and goes, "You're Stevie Taylor from the Gig Life podcast," and I went. How the fuck did you know that? I'm an audio podcast. Like nobody knows my yeah. face. Like so, uh, possibly seen my face on Facebook or something like that. And he was like, "Yeah, I love your show, man. It's so great, you know." But I'm a bass player, and I I know this guy and this guy, and you know. And I'm like, "Oh, that's really cool, man." Like, and then he goes, "Oh, you know, have a nice day." And, and it was it was really nice, and yeah, you know. But I just then I was walking back you know, sort of through the shops and my daughter said, who was that? And I said, I, I don't know. Why did he say hello to you? Like, does, yeah. Like, are you f-? And, and, and I, first time I'd ever had any experience like that in my life. Yeah. You know, and it was, yeah, it was strange. It was strange. It is strange, but it's also wonderful. It's strange, but wonderful because it's yeah. beautiful when people come up to you and want to tell you how much they enjoy your work. Yeah, that was that was cool. Yeah, yeah. I'm not if taken he, away if from he'd that. Come up, uh, if he'd come up to you and said, "This is what you should be doing in your podcast," yeah, that's a different story. You know, when people do that, it's like, no, yeah, no, yeah. no, 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 no. You go and do your own podcast, darling. <laughs> yeah, it was just put yeah, on a, yeah it was put just, on your own album. That's it. That's it. Yeah. So I yeah. So my television, you know, experience. Mm. All my television experience and being able to speak on television really helped me to become, uh, to move into my cabaret career, which is uh, I'm able to, I'm able to speak and tell good stories and I'm quite funny and, and, uh, and I, I think I do put it down. I don't think I know that it comes from the experiences of being on television and being in those situations where you have to be articulate and you have to tell a story and you have to be be entertaining at the same time. Mm. And so, you know, I really enjoy doing that. And that's mostly what I do these days is yeah. just little cabaret just, shows. We'll get a little bit deeper into that. I'm just It just made me think about, you know, you said when you're on TV and you really had to start thinking about your ums and your ahs and your, your nose and mm. is that something they came to you and said, well, you're saying um and ah too much? No. You, you need to go away and work it out or did they have people or did you just think it yourself and you worked no, it out? No, I, I realised it myself. Okay. And I think my partner at the time might have said to me, you say um a lot. Okay. And I became aware I was just uh, maybe it was the first time I looked at myself and I thought oh I said um too many times and and I'm acutely aware of it when I see people speaking on television okay I'm aware of the amount of times that people say um and I think I hope you go home and look at that and you realize that you say um every second word because it's really annoying yeah it's annoying to hear somebody say, um, well, it's um, and then it's um. But no, stop and think <laughs> and speak. I'm Be laughing because I'm laughing because when you 
when you go back and listen to this, you'll be hearing me. Like now I'm trying to correct myself. Now I'm trying to stop myself <laughs> saying um. <laughs> but yeah, I, I say um a lot. And um, yeah. oh, see, I, I just and, did it um, then. But <laughs> it's a yeah. habit. It's, it is yeah, it a, is habit. a habit. And yeah. it's not the best <laughs> habit to have when you're yeah. when you have a podcast. And I was watching who was it? It was a female police commissioner of something on television the other night talking about it could have been in Victoria talking about something that had happened in Victoria. And I swear every third word out of her mouth was um. Right. And we will be moving um to a better situation um and then and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> you just stop it. Listen to yourself. <laughs> and I know that I still say um and are. Ah. It's not like I don't say it, but it's a matter of slowing down and just being aware yeah. Yeah. of it. Because no one wants to hear hear that. You know, I've always prior taken great pride in having, you know, correct grammar and speaking well and being articulate. And when I heard myself saying um and like, I was like, oh no, that's gotta stop. <laughs> that's gonna stop right now. So you and make me want to go away and work on myself. Good. I'm going <laughs> to. Excellent. Gonna go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and oh. that's all for today. Thank you, Stevie. <laughs> <laughs> Your session's up now. It's, oh, it is interesting and I hope that you do go away and think about that because as a <laughs> podcaster, yeah. it's important that you are articulate and not saying that you're not. I've listened to you to your podcast and I wouldn't say that you say um but when you do say it now you're going to it's a it's a matter of saying to yourself I don't do that anymore yeah I don't say that anymore I don't say that anymore and when I listen to Jimmy Barnes talking he says you know every second word you know and then I'm going to do this you know you know and then you know you do this you know (laughs) and it's like oh my god I know I know I know you know I know you know I know (laughs) Um, I'm going to have like Auntie Shauna sitting on my shoulder every time I talk on a podcast <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah, you will. I'll be oh, sending you right. a text saying you've said um 50 times in this podcast. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> oh, very good. Okay, so let's talk about your your cabaret uh, career now. So, right, um, like you said, the TV kind of. Well, yeah, it, I would love another. I did another job in television. I did recently did uh, Channel 7 did a show called All Together Now All Together with 100 now. Yep. judges. Yep. And a lot of musicians, a lot of singers that they asked to do it in Sydney wouldn't do it because it was shit money. It was literally a per diem per day. And I was like, okay. I haven't got anything else to do for 10 days. I'll go and do that. And it was fun. And I yep. enjoyed it, and I didn't. Get, I didn't have to speak that much, but when I did speak, it was fun. And you know, somebody won a hundred thousand dollars at the end of it, so that was great. Mm. Um, um, see, I just said it then. Um, uh, I didn't say anything. I didn't <laughs> say anything. <laughs> when I started doing cabaret, I, I remember getting a cover of 
a gay paper called SX and they had a photo of me with me with a microphone in my hand. It was the cheesiest photo. I looked good but it was a cheesy photo. And I remember <laughs> in that article saying I'm not a cabaret performer because to me cabaret reminded me of when I first did one of the first gigs that I did was um, at a at a place called the oh, what was it called? Uh, I can't remember. It was in Cleveland Street, and it was a club, and they used to do floor shows, and that to me was cabaret, and it was cheesy, cheesy. I it just wasn't something that really. It never seemed to me to be very. Uh, cool. It was always, yeah, a baby, let's go and do cabaret. And I always thought it was a bit cheesy. I was singing in the back bar of the Albury Hotel and a guy now who's one of my very best friends named Mark Kuzma who runs this place called Claire's Kitchen now and he was a had a drag career as, as Claire de Lune. He's French. And he was doing some night at one of the bars in Oxford Street and he said, oh, you should come and and sing, do a couple. I can only pay you 50 bucks or something like that. And I was like, okay, I mean, it, this is what I've done my whole career, Stevie. I've gone, yes, 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 yep. yes, no. Now I'm in the no, I'm in the no phase. Um, <laughs> but but uh, I struck up a friendship with Mark and then he took over a business in Oxford Street called Slide a club and they wanted to have cabaret acts and so he said to me would you put a cabaret show together and I was like okay so I put a show together and a guy called Trevor Ashley who's an amazing uh impersonator singer cabaret star world known well known all around the world um he helped me put this show together and I basically wrote a show that was about my career from the beginning of walking through that door up into the present moment. And it was mainly aimed at the gay community because by that stage I'd already oh, kind of kind of glossed over the fact that I started doing dance music in 2000. So I started doing um, house music with a DJ in Sydney called Paul Goodyear. And he got, we did a song called Take Me to Heaven and he had that remixed by a DJ from London called Wayne G who I still work with and we still make records together, oh, records, we don't make records, we do songs together. Mm-hmm. And I had done a few Mardi Gras shows, which is a really big thing in the gay community. Mardi Gras shows are in the midst of a room of full of 10,000 people at 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock or 4 o'clock or 8 o'clock in the morning, there's a big production show with a singer and that singer could be Kylie, Danny, yep. Shaka Khan and, you know, Christine Anu, Tina Arena, me. Uh, yep. I have done probably four now. So I realised that the majority of the gay community had only ever seen me when they were completely off their heads on drugs at some time at the night going, oh, she's pretty, I wonder who that is. 
So I did this show to kind of introduce myself to the gay community and it was very successful and I liked it and I liked doing that. And then Mark, Claire, uh, moved next door, opened a restaurant and there was a great space upstairs for a cabaret space and it's about 50, 60 people. So I started doing cabaret shows there once a month and I've done quite a few now. And next year I hope to be um, doing those cabaret shows at the festivals. Pardon me. I really want to take it out of that, like, small realm and move into a larger realm of cabaret. Yep. Uh, and I really enjoy it. I love telling the stories. I love being funny. I love the intimacy of the cabaret. I love it. And I've worked a lot with Bob Down and he has been a huge influence on me because not just for his musical, incredible musical knowledge, but he's also very funny. His comedic timing is amazing as Bob Down, Mark Trevorrow I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And I also got to work with Gary McDonald when he was Norman Gunston. I did a tour with him when I was young, a lot younger. And who else have I worked with that was really funny? Mark, who else? Can't remember. Um, so the cabaret thing is just one thing I do. Oh, I know another story. Just going back to the sessions, I got to work with Hugh Jackman, and I yeah, got, I've got a I've got a yeah. question. Yeah, I've got a question here about this about your your um unreleased duets album with yes. Hugh Jackman. Yes, yeah, and Phil yes. Ramone. Yeah, let's talk about that. That was awesome. produced by Phil Ramone. Oh, my yep. God. I couldn't believe it when I got that gig. Wow. It was like they had tried. So it wasn't – I was never going to be doing duets with Hugh Jackman. They were going mm -hmm. to be duets that Hugh Jackman was going to do with stars from the realm of musical theatre oh, or whatever. So yep. I was just the demo singer. Okay. And they, they'd obviously tried a couple of people and didn't quite work. And I got a call and they said, could you go down to um, 301 and do this gig? And they'd like to hear you sing. I was like, oh, all right. So it was, I was living at Alexandria at the time. So I just, you know, went down there and um, Phil Ramone was there. And I was like, oh, my God, this Phil Ramone, oh, my God, you know. Mm. So they had me sing something and he goes, you got the gig. I was like, right. And so I did all these <laughs> I did all these duets with Hugh, who wasn't a very good singer at that point. Okay. He, he wasn't very good. And he'll be the first person to tell you he wasn't very good. But what a lovely guy. What just, if he was sitting right here, right now, there would, there's just no pretentiousness. There's no, he's just a genuine, regular guy. Lovely man. I had a great time doing that. And, you know, another tick. I worked with him. That was good. <laughs> and the, the guy who was producing that album had been the stage manager for Jesus Christ Superstar and he had okay. gone on to become this big New York producer. He's unfortunately passed away, but he had gone yep. on to be a big New York producer. And so it was Fabulous to have that connection there as well. They're really good. Really good. 
Yes, really very cool. cool. I've had a very now, cool career. Yes, yes. And so much more to come. I hope so. Yeah. I ain't finished now, yet. No, that's it. Now, I, um, yesterday, last night, I sent you a message and I asked you to choose one song that's had the biggest impact on you. Um, now we'll we'll play that song. We'll play that song, and um, I want you to introduce the song and just before I hit play, and then tell us why why that song and and why the impact it's had. And um, okay. yeah, we'll have a bit of a listen, and then we're gonna have a chat about it afterwards. Okay, the song is Doctor Feelgood. Love is a serious business from. Aretha Franklin live at the Fillmore. So why why this song? Well, this song is a great it's a great anthem for women. It's all about being empowered, saying, oh, this is what I want, this is my man. I don't want to talk to you girls. I don't want to do anything. I just want to be loving with my man. And it's it's just a, it's just one of the best tracks she's ever done. And I can't honestly say, Stevie, that there's one song ever. I well, you had to, this. and this is it. I know, you had to you say made one. me. You yeah, made that's, me. that's the idea. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have a listen for a bit.
So that is Aretha, Frank- Aretha Franklin live at the Fillmore, and the yeah. song is Dr. Feelgood. Now, um, you know, can I just say something but, about that yeah. track? Yeah, yeah. That track embodies Aretha's gospel roots, bringing it into a contemporary setting. And her phrasing and her, it gives me goosebumps, like just no other, like no other singer can do. Mm. And the only other person who's ever come close enough to do that is other female singer is probably Whitney Houston. Wow. Mm. Aretha is the queen, always will be. And when people say, ah, Madonna's my queen, I'm like, bitch, please. <laughs> bitch, please. <laughs> um, have you you heard the story about the Grammy Awards where Pavarotti was supposed to sing? Oh, yes. He was supposed to sing um, Listen Dorma. Dorma. Oh. Yeah, and then oh. well, for the people that don't, for the people that don't know, it was 1998 or something. The Grammys, <coughs> excuse me, and Pavarotti was supposed to. He was getting a lifetime achievement award or something like that at the Grammys, and he was supposed to perform. <coughs> he turned up at rehearsal the day before, but he didn't sing. And then the show had actually started the next day, and he hadn't turned up. So the producer rang him. And he said, look, my voice is shot. I won't be performing. I'll, I'll sing next year. So the producer is like, well, we've started the show. We've got this five-minute time slot. We've got this orchestra booked and paid for and such and such. What are we going to do? So who are we going to get? So he, he got out of his, his band booth or whatever, whatever he was and, and went into the dressing room and Aretha Franklin was sitting in there. And she was eating chicken. She was having a, having a feed, and he just said to her, "Look, I know you're performing later, but do you want to do you want to perform again? Do you want to do another song?" And she said, "Yeah, whatever, whatever you want." So, yeah, um, I think they called the the MD in, in there, and they had because apparently she'd she'd um I think she'd performed it a few days earlier somewhere else she or whatever. Been, so, she, well, I heard that she had been learning it. Learning it, right? Okay. She had, she had been learning it, and yeah. I'm not. I'm not sure whether she had performed it anywhere, but that mm. was definitely the first time. And I remember watching yeah. that Grammy Awards and standing. I can remember where I was, standing wow. with my mouth open and my hand <laughs> on my heart, not yeah. breathing, <laughs> uh, watching her doing that, and. When you and I implore all the listeners of this podcast to go and listen to Aretha's version of Nessim Dorma, oh, man. because yep. when she brings her essence into it and she does brings that gospel flavor into it towards the yep. end, there it's and then she starts no. doing her riffs. Oh, when, my when it's God. not supposed, it's not supposed to riff, is it? It's supposed yeah. to just hit those notes, but yeah. then she does her oh, she Aretha does, riffs oh, and far me out. Goosebumps just thinking yeah, me about too. It. Look, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I did a, yeah. Uh, I just did a, the uh, um, Aretha Franklin songbook uh, okay. at the Sydney Opera House, uh, twenty eighteen, I think it was twenty nineteen, mm-hmm. um, and we've been touring. We've been doing that show quite a bit 
the Aretha Franklin songbook with a 10-piece band. And I say to the audience, I'm not trying to be Aretha Franklin. I'm just singing the songs. But, boy, yep. it's a hard sing. Oh, my yeah, God. Right. It's, it's, a, right. it's a really hard sing. And, uh, you know, it's so powerful. And if I was my... If I had more control over that show, I would probably have not chosen all the hits. But people love hearing okay. all those hits, sure. which both which mostly came from one year. Think, yep. respect, you know, all those songs, those big songs. They came yep. from like '68, which is bizarre. And she's mm. done some greats and her jazz albums. And mm. she's the she is the singer that's had the greatest influence on me. Of any yep. other singer, I, and I love, I love them all. Love Shark. I love Gladys. Love Whitney. You know, she was a great singer. Bloody hell, she was a good singer. That girl. Yeah, but Aretha. I remember was talking to Queen when I interviewed Beck. I, I believe that that was her. That was her big singer too, is, is Aretha. Yeah. Well, Becky used to sit. Yeah. Becky used to sit in the back of the car, in her car mm. seat, doing harmonies. And and when the Blues Brothers album came out, uh, the Blue, Blues Brothers movie, she used to play it all the time. And she would dance on the back of the couch being Aretha Franklin. So when we did the Aretha Franklin songbook, I made her sing Think. And she awesome. told that story to the audience and everybody loved it. Loved Fantastic. That. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Great. That, that's cool. Yeah, I wanted her to um, sing it because it was a really hard song to sing. <laughs> <laughs> Palm it off. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Well, Shauna Jensen, this has been this has been awesome. You're a gem. Uh, you, I've Stevie. had a blast hanging out with you tonight. You made me laugh, and Yay. your stories are great. And I, yeah, I, I love you. I think you're awesome. Thank you and, so um, much. Yeah, sweet as this has been good. Yeah, thank um, you. So I'll, yeah, much. wish wish you all wish you all the best for the rest of the year, and uh, yeah, if you got some gigs in in Sydney, and yeah, I'll try and get out, and we can catch Ab- up, and have a beer. Absolutely, be cool. that'd be awesome, be awesome Stevie. Yeah. Thank you so much. And you know what? I must say, congratulations for creating something like the Gig Life podcast and supporting Australian music. It's a really treasured thing that you're doing. And I think Thank you should you. be very proud of it. Thank very you very much. Very proud of it. Oh, that's all right. That's um, really cool. ah, just remember. Um, <laughs> that's it. I've got to get to work. I've got to get to work. <laughs> okay, babe. Thanks so yeah, much. All right, Shorter. Take it easy. Later. Bye. Yeah. Catch you, mate. See ya. See Bye. ya.